In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Tracy Osborne of Wedding Lovely about things she would have done differently during the nine years she ran Wedding Lovely. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 455. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob, and today with Tracy Osborne, we're going to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. On this show, we talk about building startups in an organic sustainable fashion. And while we are ambitious founders who want to grow our companies, we don't do it at the expense of our life. We have many different show formats. Oftentimes we will talk about tactics and teach things. We answer listener questions. We have some founder hot seats. And today I'm doing an interview, but it's more of a conversation with Tracy Osborne, founder of Wedding Lovely, which she ran from 2010 until late 2018. And I believe she actually shut it down technically in in early 2019. Tracy and I now work together at Tiny Seed. She's the program manager for the Accelerator. And we've known each other for several years now. She spoke at MicroConf in 2016. And I believe that was the first time we met in person. And then obviously we've gotten to know each other much better over the past three or four months as we've worked together on Tiny Seed. What I like about Tracy's story is that it really is a story of high highs and and low lows. From teaching herself to code to bootstrapping the company in 2010, and then going through two accelerators, although one of them really didn't put much money in, winding up going through 500 startups. Wedding Lovely was really hitting on all cylinders. And then catastrophic stuff happens. And, and it's fascinating to hear her thought process of some regrets, things she would have done differently, and other things that didn't turn out, but she made the best decision she could at the time. And so I really appreciated Tracy's honesty and transparency in the interview today. I think it makes for, you know, an interesting story like several of the guests we've had on recently who are able to dig into decisions they made, things they might have done differently, as well as things that, that they did do right and, and the learnings that they took away from, from running a startup. As quick background, Wedding Lovely was a, a blog and a wedding marketplace that matched up wedding vendors with couples who were going to be married, engaged couples. And with that bit of background, we'll take you right into the story. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this interview, I'd really appreciate it if you'd reach out on Twitter. I'm at Rob Walling, and Tracy is at Tracy Makes. So let's dive in. Well, Tracy, thanks so much for joining me on the show this week. Thanks for having me. So listeners already have some context about Wedding Lovely and how you started it. I want to start by looking at the decision you made to move from bootstrapped to taking $50,000 in funding from 500 startups. What led to that happening and and how did you make that decision? That was a really tough decision because I think before 500 startups happened, I was fully in the bootstrapped camp. And this is 2011. So there wasn't, you know, Tiny Seed didn't exist. All these other alternate funding or different paths, they didn't exist. So it was like, are you going to do a full funding route or are you going to go bootstrapping? That was it. There was no middle ground. And I was fully in the bootstrap camp. I think I was already following Patrick McKenzie, Patty Levin's writings about this at the time. 
And I had joined the designer fund in San Francisco, which is totally different than how they are now. But at the time, it was kind of like a small, small accelerator-ish thing where we got like a really small chunk of money and we just worked together for three months, meeting up every week just to work on our, our projects together. And one of the designer fund founders was a mentor at 500. And he decided to set up interviews with 500 just in case for everyone who was in designer fund. So for me, I was like, okay, this is good practice. This is great for me to go in and practice pitching and whatnot. And it was a really interesting experience because I met with I met with Dave McClure and Paul Singh, who I don't think is involved with 500 anymore, but I met with Paul first. And Paul was like, I've seen your articles. I've seen you talk about Wedding Lovely and what you're building. I think you're awesome. And he called me a cockroach, which I thought was awesome. He's like, you'll never die. You're persistent. You're in there. Like, you're in. And I was like, whoa, that was easy. And then I sat down with Dave McClure and I gave my presentation and he's said, uh, all right, we'll get back to you soon. And I was like, oh, Paul already said I'm in. And that totally threw Dave McClure off because I didn't talk about this. I think I totally threw it off, threw everything off for Dave McClure and probably what they were planning. And I mean, at that time, I wasn't sure I was going to take it yet, but it was kind of thing where I was like, okay, cool. I have this opportunity to go through 500. My husband had just gone through YC and I knew I like I knew I was really into bootstrapping beforehand, but it was just, it was like, okay, I have this offer on the table. Let's see what happens. That was kind of the, the thought process about it. Like not everyone gets this kind of offer, this kind this chunk of money, you know. And I wasn't ready. I like, I don't know, like hindsight being 2020, 20, that's where I hesitate right now because I look back at the decision and be like, I should have thought more about this. I should have thought about what goes into like know more about what goes into a funded company, the kind of growth that's a required when you're a funded company, when you have investors, what's involved with raising a full series A, that kind of stuff. But it was kind of just like, okay, this is going to be a learning experience. I have this opportunity here. I watched my husband go through YC. Let's do it. Yeah. The, the hard part that I see with the 500 startups investment was that they only gave you 50 grand, but it came with the expectation of, well, now you're on venture track. And it's not enough money to act like a funded startup, in my opinion, but it sounds like you you wanted to or felt the pressure to start acting like a funded startup. Yeah, for sure. And it was, there's so many other complicating factors. My time in 500 was, I did not utilize it as well as I should have. And I'm taking a lot of stuff I've learned actually from being in 500 to what we're building at Tiny Seed. Some of it was, I was a solo founder and Complicating factor is I funded another wedding company the same time in my batch. And they did this also thing where they they also required you to get desks at their space and they sat us across from each other and we were not friends. And I wanted to be friends with them, but the other people, they were very aggressive, very, that's like stereotypical startup, like that bad stereotype you might think of a startup founder. That's how they were. Something from H- HBO show Silicon Valley or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we were, we were not friends and it kind of, I just felt so awkward being there with a, a competitor and they actually pivoted more into my space during the batch. And so I didn't show up to any of the networking stuff. I didn't do any like the evening stuff. I didn't really connect with the other founders. I just decided to stay in my own little world, heads down, work on things, hired someone at that time, brought her on. This is a time that I found a co-founder, which we can talk about later. But in terms of 500, I didn't really involve myself in the program. I didn't really utilize the mentors that were there. I didn't do any, I didn't use any of the help that 500 gave me. And I look back in that time being like, wow, I wish I could redo that because it was my, my social anxiety just came into play there and I didn't use it as well as I should have. 
Right, because as as we've heard from so many people in the Tiny Seed Batch, the community and the mentorship is is at least as valuable, if not more valuable, than the, than the money they invest. And I, it sounds like you feel like you squandered that opportunity a bit. Absolutely, like you know, networking is so important to one's career, and the connections I could have made during that time. Like, who knows where I could be right now? Maybe the same, but it could have like, you know, if I use those connections, there's some people in my batch that have gone out on to like really big startups, really amazing things. Like when I was looking for a job, those are the kind of like connections that would have been really awesome if I was trying to find a job somewhere, but I didn't like, I've completely lost contact with them. I wasn't friends with them during the batch. I, who knows what have ha- would have happened. So I look back in that time, if I could have redone the accelerator program, absolutely being involved and using the opportunities that are available um, is something I, I didn't do, and I regret that. Do you regret the decision to take the funding? I think I would say no. Well, okay, so like, I, we can do a whole podcast on how insane the weddings industry is. And I talk to a lot of people who are jumping into the weddings industry because they look at it as like this, this industry where a lot of people are spending a lot of money and therefore it's going to be really easy for someone to build a startup and just take some of that money. Oh yeah, they're just, you know, if you're spending $30,000 on a wedding, of course they'll pay $10 for my app. And it gets way more complicated than that. And the thing with the wedding industry, because there's so much competition, there's so many startups and so many people trying to like compete for people's attention and you have 100% churn after a year because all these people are dropping off your platform. It means that advertising is like a really big thing and advertising is really expensive. And so that chunk of money did help, like I could apply it to things to help boost the business that's like absolutely necessary, I think, in the wedding industry if you're targeting people who are getting married. So that money was used. I also used it to hire someone. That was great. I did learn a lot from being in the program. I look back on it being like, okay, that was a really good learning experience. And I wish I could redo it, but it, I don't wish I did something differently. I guess that's what I would say. Like it wasn't perfect. It wasn't a perfect experience, but I learned from it. And for better or worse, that's how I got to where I am right now. And at the end of the program, there's a demo day and that's where folks raise, you know, essentially raise their seed round or pre-seed round these days, I guess. And you decided not to raise a round. I believe you had a co-founder by that point. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about the co-founder and then the decision you made to pause funding right as demo day approached? Right. Yeah. The roller coaster of Wedding Lovely. This was the peak. <laughs> like I was, I was in 500. Again, I wasn't using the program as much as I could have. But at the time I was like, cool, I'm doing everything right. Because this absolutely amazing, awesome person, uh, Julia Grace, I believe she's a director of inf- infrastructure at, at Slack now. She reached out to me asking me if she could become a co-founder. And I was like, this person is amazing. She's an amazing engineer. She would be a great CTO. I was like, absolutely, come join Wedding Lovely. So Julia joined, I was in 500. And at the time I was traveling in New York and, oh, I can't remember his last name. Kellen was the CTO of Etsy and he invited me to come into Etsy for lunch. And I was like, you know, again, cloud nine, I'm kicking ass, everything's going awesomely. CTOs of Etsy are inviting me to lunch. So I go over to Etsy for lunch and he drops the bomb on me saying like, hey, let's talk about acquiring Wedding Lovely. And I was just like, again, cloud nine. Oh my God, I'm doing everything right. So the demo day was like right around the corner and Juliana decided not to like really pursue it because we wanted to focus on being acquired by Etsy because I loved Etsy. Etsy was would be a great fit for Wedding Lovely. What they were doing at the time, they're, they're switching some focus into wedding. So it would have been a really awesome fit for both of us. I did do demo day through 500. 
And I got to say, I bombed the first two ones. I was, I'm much better at presenting I am now, but I, I look back on my first two pitches at Demo Day because they gave us like two, two minutes to be on stage. It's really stressful. There's an audience of people. And I just, I did not do well for the first two. By the third one that we did in New York, I finally got my stride. But I was like, oh, it doesn't matter because I'm going to get acquired by Etsy. And long story short, that didn't fall, that fell through. We can explore that in a second. Yeah, I was going to ask, you didn't do well because you weren't preparing, you weren't focused on it because you you figured the, you were kind of counting on Etsy acquiring you. Is that right? Yeah. Do you have a reg- regret around that of just knowing most acquisitions fall through, but it doesn't feel like that when you're in conversations with them. It feels like it's going to happen. And so do you feel like your judgment was clouded there or do you feel like you made the right call? Again, hindsight being 2020, definitely judgment is clouded. I got I just like not as good as a public speaker as I am now. And I, I know that I didn't prepare enough. I know that I, I kind of just, it's a silly thing to think about, but I was like, oh, I'll just roll up and I just give my little two minute presentation. Speaking of like two minute presentations are the hardest thing in the world. Like it's really hard to give like a proper presentation in such a small amount of time. So it's really hard to like hit all your marks and stress about like making sure you remember every single moment in that presentation because you have such small amount of time. So yeah, there's some, there's a lot, a lot of regrets for that. Again, that's also an opportunity. If I kicked it out of the park, even though I didn't, I didn't decide to raise money then, but the connections I could have made in that audience of the VCs who were there, the people I could have met, the people I could have connected with is another thing that I regret not doing. Like I'm a huge fan of networking and meeting as many people as possible and becoming as friends with, with as many people as possible. Cause those are the things that are going to transform one's career down the line. And a lot of the things that where I am right now is just because of connections I made beforehand. Like I, this tiny seed thing is probably because I met you at Microconf and I spoke at Microconf. Like who knows what's going to happen down the line. And I regret not like trying to pay attention during those demo days and making those friends and making those connections and just being consumed by anxiety, running, making my presentation and then running out. <laughs> I've done very similar things, especially early on this is probably 10 years ago, but I would go to conferences and I was so, I'm an introvert and I don't like meeting new people and I get stressed about it. And I like, wouldn't meet the, sp- the other speakers. And I was anxious to go talk to people. And so I, I know how that feels. And you, I learned from that pretty quickly because I saw other people having those relationships and I saw what they did both for their kind of sanity and well-being, but also for their businesses and, and just the opportunities that it affords saying yes to things that scare the out of you often will lead to things years down the line, as you're saying, that you never could have predicted, but that change, they change the game for you. And and I literally look back uh, at my history, not to go off on a tangent here, but I had a very similar experience where I had never met Jeff Atwood of Coding Horror. He and I blogged and we used to email back and forth and we'd link to each other's blog posts. I mean, this is 2005, six, seven. I never met him in person. He was running an event and I, w- I was super terrified, but I went up and I was just like, hey man, I'm Rob Walling. And he's like, hey, I love your blog, blah, blah, blah. And we were talking and he's like, you go into business and software? And I was like, no, I, I'm not really good. It's kind of not my thing. And he's like, well, well, you should go. Let me just link you over to Joel Spolsky. And so just that, that step you know, moving forward, like it, it, these are the things of like getting over those fears, overcoming fears and taking risks is, is really what this is about. Even if, even though it's hard. I have something similar. Um, if we're going to go even farther back in time, I feel like my career is, is directly leads from my university graduation. I was graduating with an art degree. I was really into web design, but none of my classmates, all my classmates were into product design or more like physical mediums. 
And our like keynote speaker at our commencement was a designer from Apple came in and speak. And I was like, whoa, a web person. She's talking about web and stuff. And so I talked to her afterwards and she said, and this was 2007. She said, if you want to get into the web industry, you need to go South by Southwest. And again, I have so much anxiety. I could tell in our podcast about how much social anxiety I have. Uh, I did a keynote at JingoCon US about it. And it was the most terrifying thing. I took her advice and I booked myself a hotel room and I went to South by Southwest alone, didn't know anyone there. And it's so overwhelming. And I most of the parties, I just like walked in, panicked and walked out. But on the flight back, I happened to be sitting some, near some attendees. And those people became my friends in the Bay Area that introduced me to more people, introduced me to more people that I went to conferences with. And that's like a direct line to where I am right now. There's a concept that Jason Roberts on texting talks about is called your luck surface area, increasing your luck surface area by doing a lot of things. And I've often thrown around, I love the, the old quote from Thomas Jefferson of like, the harder I work, the luckier I get. But this is different because it's not necessarily hard work unless you consider just getting over your own fears hard work, which I, I guess I probably do. But it's like taking risks often equates eventually. You take enough of them and it, you know, it gets you to, uh, to some quote unquote lucky uh, outcomes, but they really aren't luck, you know? Right. I am so happy. Like, on the anxiety topic, it still rears its head now, but like 10 years in of like actively working on reducing it and making sure that like I've, I'm going out there and like being open to these opportunities has been, it's been a hard, but it's been worth it. I'm glad that I'm a lot better now. And so to, to resume the story, you were, you were talking to Etsy, you weren't putting much effort into the fundraising and preparing for demo day kind of counting on the, the Etsy thing working out, they did ultimately make you an offer. What was, the, what was that like when you received the offer? And was it, was it via email? Was it a phone conversation? Talk me through the emotion of that. Well, let's step back one step. It was funny because I, I had the final meeting in New York. And again, cloud nine, like we got flown into New York, put up in a really fancy hotel. Like I had offered like a non-fancy hotel and they're like, no, we're going to put you up in the, oh, I forget the name of it. But it's like the one where all the celebrities stay at in Manhattan. So like they put me up in a fancy hotel. We had the whole day's meetings, met with Chad um, Dickerson, went out to a fancy dinner afterwards with me and Julia and all the, like the, the top level team. And again, I'm just like, I am kicking butt. And throughout this time, I'm talking with 500. Dave McClure helped me out, getting me prepped for like what happens in an acquisition and like how to compose everything and how to compose myself. And I had other advisors in the Bay Area that were helping me figure out valuation. Like, you know, didn't want to give a first number ourselves, but I wanted to have like a good range of what a good valuation for my business would be so I don't make bad decisions. So I thought, you know, I the prep work was great. And I, I think I did everything right for that. But it came in an email and it was um, the financial person. One of the, it's not like CFO. It was just like a financial analyst or someone at Etsy. <laughs> he sent me over. Oh no, it was a call. It was a call. Sat down with me and Julia. It was a call and they gave us a number and the number was one fourth of what the lowest valuation that all of my advisors said that Wedding Lovely was worth, especially considering that Etsy had told me that they were going to keep the website up. So it wasn't just going to be an aqua hire. They were going to use the properties. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. Don't say anything on the call. Hung up. Julia and I were like, oh crap. And you know, we went back and forth and like, okay, it's a negotiation. So we'll just like give another number and see if we can meet somewhere in the middle. So we sent them back an email saying, thanks. That was not what we're looking for, blah, blah, blah. Here's what we actually think the business is worth. And they responded with completely unexpected, did not expect this. They responded with, okay, does not look like a fit. Goodbye. <laughs> 
which is like devastating because I expected this whole negotiation process. And it was so weird. It's so weird to me today that that's how it happened. And like all of my advisors in the area are like, what is Etsy doing? This is not how an acquisition process is supposed to go. <laughs> like we just went through all that effort and they just went away. And it wasn't like my counter was outrageous. So that was weird and really devastating. And we, like I said, we didn't do the like the full fundraising process when we had the best time for it, which was demo day. We didn't do, we didn't follow up any of those meetings. And so now this is like two or three months afterwards. Our momentum is stalled. There's no like big, you know, 500 startups demo day anymore. And it was like, kind of like, okay, what do we do? Do we launch a new product? And at launch of that, do we then raise money then? And then it got really confusing and really weird and very depressing and very crazy. And that was around the time that Julia decided that she wanted to move on to other opportunities. And so I was like, this this high that I was on before just like free felled. Like it was horrible. It was the worst part of the business. Just a couple months, it just went from the top, top to the bottom, bottom. I mean, looking back, do you wish you'd taken Etsy's offer? Have you ever thought about that? Even though it was low, it, it wouldn't have made sense at the time. And if you had, everyone would have been like, you're nuts. But what if you had? Do you think that would have been a good thing? Oh, I go back and forth on that all the time. It was, uh, I can't say numbers. It came out to being kind of like a, it was like a hiring bonus, essentially. And so if I was like, okay, I'm going to be a proper startup founder. I'm glad I did not take it because that was a ridiculous number. Like everyone agreed that it was a ridiculous number and I shouldn't take it. Uh, but, you know, having that stamp of approval of that, oh, I got acquired by Etsy on my resume, what doors would that have opened? Because people just look at those those titles, that achievement, and then assume you're so much more awesome than you actually are. <laughs> I wish I had, I wish I had that. I wish I had an acquisition on my record. You know, working at Etsy probably would have been really great fun. I would have avoided that devastating drop of what happened afterwards with Julia leaving, I had to lay off someone. That's when I switched the boost business back to bootstrapping because there was no way I was going to be fundraising at that point. And I was just like, kind of gave up on it. And the way that Wedding Lovely was built, I could just put on autopilot. So at that point, I was just like, okay, business, go do your thing. And I'm just going to go over here in a corner and curl up and be really sad. You're at the highest point, And within a couple months, you have lost this acquisition offer that you really thought was going to come through. Etsy essentially walked away from the table, which is kind of surprising. I had in different acquisition talks that, that I've had, companies have walked away from the table, but they'll come back a couple weeks later. Did you think, did you expect them to do that? Or when they said they were gone, you were like, this thing's done. So this was a while ago. I'm trying to remember exactly what happened, but I know that the feeling was this thing is done. And I'm trying to think, uh, we had an advocate at the company and we reached out to the advocate. He was like, this is weird. I'll get back to you. And it sounds, I think what happened in the end, it sounds like there was some weird miscommunication. Something happened on Etsy's side that I am not privy to, but something happened on Etsy's side where they're like, wait, this is a bad decision. We're not going to do it. And it wasn't having to do with Wedding Lovely. I think something, something with financials or something, but it was just like, no, we can't, we can't do this right now. Wow. And so that falls apart. And then Julia leaves shortly thereafter. So what is that like? I mean, when Julia calls or emails or however that happened, how does that make you feel? Obviously, there's got to be some despair and stress, but were you were you at that point thinking like, this isn't going to work? Like, I should just shut, shut this down. Everything's falling apart. 
the day of, Julia sent me an email and saying, all right, I'm going to come to your house to work. Because we didn't have an office. I think we had an office for a little bit in Mountain View. But at the time, I think we shut it down also because everything was free falling. And she asked to come over to my house. And so we sat down at my house and she was like, okay, I'm just going to open it with this. And I forget exact words she said, but essentially it was like, you know, this has been a really interesting experience, but I'm going to move on to do something else. So it was kind of like Cobb's fact. I did not expect that. And I think I just like, okay, maybe you should go home now. <laughs> I need time to process this. Thanks for driving all the way down to my house. <laughs> and she left and I, I walked around the neighborhood with my dog, just dying. Just like, oh my God, what just happened? I can't believe this happened. And I, like, I was really bad at Julia for a long time and I'm not mad at her now. But at the time, it just, it felt very personal. Like it was very much, she didn't believe in me, you know, and a lot of it, a lot of the business, a lot of Wedding Lovely, a lot of it's my personal mistakes I made as being the founder and the person who started in the, as quote, CEO. And that was never my title, which is weird. There's a lot of mistakes I made, but I took it so personally and I did not like her. I was so mad at her for so long. And we're friends now. It was hard. It's hard not to take it personally. It's hard not to take the, the company failing personally. And I think that's a lot of the reason why I didn't shut it down because I was like clinging to this idea of like, I'm not a failure. You know, and if I shut down the business right now, then it's me admitting that I'm a failure, that everything fell apart and it's all my fault. So by keeping the business up, it was like, no, I'll keep growing. I'll keep building the business. I It's, it's still going on. And it's still making me money. And I'm glad I built it in the way that I don't have to like continually spend marketing money on it because it was marketplace and the marketplace part was pretty active at that point. So I had these businesses working with me and it was just like, it was just me just trying to prove to the world that I could still make Wedding Lovely a success. I guess the question that, that comes to mind is Julia was with you for eight months and she was a co-founder who came on two years after you started the company it's all hindsight again, because you thought it would work out. But do you do you regret that decision of bringing a co-founder on? Not Julia, because we know Julia. I mean, you're friends with Julia. She's a rock star. So not for her in particular. But do you think this would have been better, easier, different if you had just not, you know, evaluated the, the idea of taking a co-founder on? I In hindsight being 2020, I wish that I... I was like, okay, I'm going to stay the founder, but you can be the CTO. Because I think that would have switched something in my brain. I think a lot of my being so offended by her quitting, I was like, but you're a founder. Like, this is supposed to be your baby. But no, it's because she started so late. It's not her baby. It's my baby. I built, you know, the first version of all the websites. I built everything from scratch myself. Of course, it's my baby. And she came in and she updated some things. She built some things herself. But it wasn't, she didn't have that, like, personal feeling like I did. And I think it was a disservice to everyone to call her a co-founder when I think it's CTO or some of these other titles would have been a better fit. And then when she left, I think mentally, just like a weird logic thing, it would have felt a little better. I don't know. That's how I kind of feel about it. And also just like, I don't know, you can't bring a, a co-founder in a couple of years in, I think. They're no longer a founder, quote. I agree with that. I, I think the title is the issue here. And I don't think bringing Julia on was a mistake at all, especially at the time. It was a good move. And even in retrospect, you made the best decision you could at the time. But it, it, it rings true to me that, that that title maybe wasn't wasn't right. Because if a co-founder wouldn't have left, eh, I shouldn't say wouldn't have, but there would I think there would have been more conversation and more more consideration. Because you're right, having only been there eight months, she was less, less tied to it than you. Yeah. And like, we didn't have a lot of like, 
a lot of good conversations back and forth between me. Like I didn't actually treat her like a co-founder and that's my fault. You know, the business, I was running all the administration of the business. I was running all the vision for the business, like where we're going, what we're doing, whatnot. And I wasn't really involving her in those conversations, which was absolutely a huge mistake because I wasn't allowing her also to feel, to make it her, her baby as well. So when she left, I remember being gobsmacked because I had no idea she was unhappy or that she wanted to leave or she was looking for other things. I had wished that she had told me that she was out there looking for another job because she she told me she already had a job lined up. But then I was like, you know, years later, I looked back on that being like, but I wasn't involving her either. And if I, we should have had that personal connection if we're going to be founders together of talking to each other and talking about things are going right and what's wrong and involving her and how the business is going and helping her, letting her be part of that planning you know, and in those process, I probably would have found out from her earlier on that she wasn't happy, but I didn't know that. And I think that was a big failure on my part as being a founder of Wedding Lovely. And so you mentioned earlier that, that after Julia left, you went back to bootstrapping. And was that the point where you put it on autopilot? Because I, I have a blog post from you in 2016 where you talk about putting it on autopilot, but what was the timeline like there? Yeah, this is where things get a little bit like wavy. You know, 2016 to like now, you know, it's, there's like this points where I was like, okay, Wedding Lovely is running itself. I'm just going to spend a little bit of time on it. I started working on my book business around then. Well, it wasn't really a business. It was like, I'm on my side. I'm just going to start writing a book because I need something to bring me joy in my life. And right now, Wedding Lovely is not it. <laughs> so I, this was 2016 or this was 2012? Uh, 2016. I mean, okay, it's, it's, it's been so long that some of these, these dates kind of get mixed up, but after Julia left, I just started ignoring the business for a little bit, not really working on it. I don't remember what I was doing. I think I spent a lot of time just in a depressed state. How does that manifest itself with you? Were you just like sitting at your computer, responding to email and, you know, and not, not actually working, but feeling like you were trying to work or were you just avoiding work altogether? I think I did the bare minimum to feel like, oh, I'm still running Wedding Lovely. So I was still responding to support emails. I was, I think I was still running the blog. So that was a big part of Wedding Lovely is that there was a weddings blog. Uh, a lot of Wedding Lovely's income came through that because we had affiliate revenue and I was still dedicated to at least doing a daily post every day because that was one of the ways, one of my things I did well with Wedding Lovely was by having this big group of businesses that was Wedding, Wedding Lovely is kind of representing and I tied them into our blog. So we got free content from them by sharing what the businesses were doing. So it'd be like photo posts from our photographers or real wedding posts from our planners or dives into like looking at invitation designs from our designers. And this allowed me to work with the companies that were on Wedding Lovely and give them something of value and also encourage them to move to paid accounts by running this weddings blog. So that was probably the largest piece of involvement I had was I continued to run this blog, grabbing the content in from these people. I had a contractor I was working with, so I didn't have to have to move things to WordPress. I just took what they emailed, sent to her, she put onto WordPress for me, and then I came back in and set up on social media, set up the scheduled posts and stuff. So I ran all that and it was like, oh, I'm still running a business. I still told myself I was running a business, but I wasn't looking at the numbers. I wasn't looking at how many businesses were joining over time. Like, was that number going up or down? What was my traffic like? It was complicated because I had 11 different properties I was running. So looking at traffic for all 11 properties was terrible. And that's why I never looked at my analytics and I didn't pay attention to any of the data that was going on. And I just kind of just ran the blog and accepted the money that came in that went straight to my bank account. And yeah. Kind of ran it as a, almost a side business or like a true lifestyle business. That definition of it, it literally just kind of is a, a salary and you're not, you weren't more ambitious with it, it sounds like. And at that point, 
you have a, a blog post from 2016, and, and I'll quote I'll quote yourself back to you. But you say the planning and marketplace sides of Wedding Lovely would probably grow faster with dedicated marketing and sales work, but will grow naturally slowly but surely on their own. 2016 is already shaping up to be the biggest year yet, even though I haven't had much time to work on Wedding Lovely. I'm not going to shut Wedding Lovely down, even though I'm looking for a full-time job since it does largely run and grow by itself. Ideally, I'll be able to keep feature growth as well by eventually hiring a remote developer. That's my baby, Wedding Lovely. <laughs> how, does it, how does it feel to, to hear that? Oh, my God. I haven't read those in a long time. and I really should reread them because I have almost no memory of that. <laughs> it's so funny. Who is that person? Uh, I mean, so, yeah, the Wedding Lovely had this, like, little peak because the, the marketplace was growing, like I said. It was growing, and that was great because I didn't have to worry about it. Uh, and then the affiliate sales on the other side w- was growing pretty steadily. It was one of those things I knew that would go away, but Google's magic SEO turned in our favor. And one of our blog posts got to the top of the results for a very big listing. And therefore there's tons of money was coming in through affiliate revenue. And so at that time I was like, oh, wow, I'm doing this lifestyle business, right? Our income has doubled overnight. I can use this income. I think around this time is when I decided to hire someone full-time to kind of run everything for me, like a marketing person, but she also helped do emails. She would also, I was, ideally it was supposed to be like she was going to help do vision and run the company. And that ended up not happening, uh, which is fine. But I hired someone in Florida. I had a contractor, the same person doing WordPress, but she kind of grew into more social media stuff in Washington. I also hired a full-time virtual assistant in the Philippines, and she definitely did all the, she did all the nitty gritty stuff. So I was able to train her to help out with the social media stuff and do all the support emails and kind of release me from doing a lot of those day-to-day things. So then I was only doing salary, taxes, bookkeeping, that kind of stuff. So that, that was kind of like going back into like, hey, I'm doing this right. I'm doing it like a different way than when I was doing the whole Etsy stuff. But I was like, cool, I'm doing this lifestyle business the right way. I have people employed. The business is growing. I can start paying myself again at some point. I think at that time I started paying myself, I think a thousand bucks a month, which is peanuts. But it was cool to be able to employ all these people and pay myself. And was that the right call? It was fun. I don't know if it's the right call. All these things are such, it's so hard looking back on that because you don't know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. But I mean, in terms of what I've learned in that time of having employee and running a remote business, and I, it brought me so much joy, honestly, to have these employees and be able to, especially um, Jenny, my marketing person, I, I kind of reveled in being a good boss. And I think I did everything correctly. Like she, like she, like she was engaged. She was working on things. I was kind of hands-off, but I kind of, I directed her. I helped, I was able to pay for classes, like online classes to help improve what she was working on. And, you know, hopefully now, like I hope she takes it to her current jobs. It was really fun. I loved being like, okay, cool. You know, I'm working on this book business that's bringing enough money to run myself. So I'm happy taking the majority of the income of Wedding Lovely and putting it towards these other people and giving them a okay lifestyle. They seem to be pretty happy. So I mean, it was fun. What happened between then and 2018? Because at the end of uh, October 2018, you wound up shutting it down. <laughs> so this whole time, all the for the last five or so years, I kept being like, I would like to sell this business at some point. I'm just waiting for the right moment. And that ended up not ever panning out. And 2018 is when that Google magicalness 
just reverse itself. And I knew that was going to happen. Like Google giveth, Google taketh away. You know, one day you're number one in search results and then one day you're not. And I had, I had re rescued this post a few times already by, by switching things around and returning the SEO juice back to where it was. And this time I wasn't able to do it. I knew that to fix the post or fix the affiliate income that was coming in, I would have to make some, like spend a lot of time on it or write new posts or do something because instead of our income increasing by half overnight, it dropped by two thirds overnight. And I was like the big panic moment of being, it was like, a, it was that moment where I was like, finally, I have to make a decision about this because now it's just not easy money anymore. That forced your hand. So was the majority of the income of the business coming from this one, this one post? I leaned into it and that might be a regret because it started happening and I was like, this is going really well. I'm going to start more posts. I'm going to do more things for affiliate revenue. And that kind of helped buffer everything and maybe like, worried less about the income that's coming in on the business side, worried less about income that's coming from other sources. And I know that when it dropped, I, I, I totally, like when it dropped, I was not bad. I was like, oh, look, it happened. <laughs> like I was expecting this to happen someday. And I was, you know, if I wanted to continue working on Wedding Lovely, at that point, I could be like, okay, cool. Let's switch our focus really quickly back over the business side. Because our metrics on the business side was not great. The people, we had almost uh, 9,000 businesses and maybe a hundred paying customers. This is embarrassing to say, but it was like, I wasn't really worried about it because I had also income coming from those sources and I wasn't really looking for like 10% month over month growth. I was just looking for just enough to keep things running. And so when it dropped, it was like, okay, I can go back and spend time and work on the other side of this business or I can finally face the music and be like, this is the time that it needs to go away. Right. This is, see, this is something that, that I hear people talk about, and I don't think that they f fully understand how hard it is to, quote unquote, autopilot a website or a, a software company or a startup. I've heard people talk about like, you know, a, a SaaS app should just be built to be profitable, just like a dry cleaner or a car wash, right? The thing is, is A, most dry cleaners and car washes don't last 10, 20, 30 years. They do go out of business. And B, it's way more volatile with these types of businesses because, as you said, Google can change overnight. Another competitor can spring up. Just the online marketing stuff changes so fast that truly having a business that is profitable and lasts for 10 years online without quite a bit of concerted effort every 12 to 18 months to just fight the fires. I've done it. I mean, I've, I've owned 15, at least 15 different software products and another probably 10, 15 different websites that made money from every conceivable thing from e-commerce to content, to AdWords, to selling software one time, to selling multiple software, you know, or, or subscription software to info products. I've done them all. And in the end, putting something on autopilot is so, so hard to actually last anything more than one, two, or three years. And that's, that is why the multiples on a lot of these companies are so low. You know, you'll see a content site sell for two years of its net profit. And it's like, well, that's preposterous. That's just crazy. That's such a deal. But then you get into it and you realize, oh, Google smacks it around every six months. And you experience that in full force. And it sounds like if you had been focused on Wedding Lovely, you would have probably diversified the revenue streams, right? You would have had to, you know, use the SEO because getting money from SEO is great from affiliate stuff. It's a great way to do it. But to rely on it as the, as the core focus and to put, build most of the company on it, it obviously isn't going to last forever. Yeah. And like I said, I was not mad when it went away. I, was, I knew that day was going to happen. It happened earlier than I thought it would. Like, it's funny, like, like listening to this time, because I was like, oh, you know, that was a lot of effort. It was never, like you said, it never was 
completely is hands off. My brain power, even when I hired people, I was spending so much brain power on it. And after I shut it down, it was like this whole process of like laying off the people I hired and shutting it down. And after I shut it down, people, I had this India Hackers article that I wrote at the peak, which was great at the time. But now it's kind of like, oh no. Cause it's like talking about how amazing things are like that blog post. It talks about amazing things are. And people are like, why don't you just keep running it? Why don't you just keep it up the background? Why don't you put it back to his autopilot? I get this email pretty often. And it's because the brain power required just to even have something there, knowing it's there, getting even a few emails every day or every week about it, you know, having to deal when something changes in your server and you have to go upgrade the server because everything broke or something like that. Like it takes a lot of time and it's really hard to focus on doing something else appropriately when you're split focus like that. Yep. Focus is such a huge thing. And it's, I think it's undervalued in kind of in our space. In the blog post that you, you published in, I believe it was October of 2018, about shutting it down, you said, you, you, you look back and you talk about your decision to put it on autopilot. And you said, my passion has largely moved elsewhere to Hello Web Books. It's been my focus for the last couple of years. But Wedding Lovely largely ran itself and is making a good amount of revenue through affiliate and subscription accounts. So I hired a team to keep it running a few years ago and stayed on as an advisor. It was the lazy way out. The business wasn't evolving significantly. No new features were being launched, but the businesses and engaged couples that used our services seemed happy. I was able to employ a few folks who seemed happy as well. So why not continue with it? And that that kind of summarizes. It sounds like you still feel that putting it on autopilot probably wasn't the best idea, but it was working for people. You know, people were using it. You were employing people, and it was just a decision you made at the time. Yeah, in the theme of this episode is always hindsight is 2020. Like now that I have, I'm working at Tiny Seed or just having a job. At the time, I was like so hesitant to shut things down because I knew that I would have to go in the process of actually finding something else. Like the book stuff wasn't supporting me full time. And I had a decision whether I wanted to launch a new book or turn my book thing into a publishing platform or like go all in on this other project that I was working on or find an actual job. And I was so scared of finding a job after working largely for myself for the last 10 years. And the only other two places I've been employed were terrible, terrible experiences. So I was like dedicated to working for myself because I thought that I could not have a boss. (laughs) And now that I have a job that I really enjoy, it's like what, you know, it could have been four years ago when I just like, you know, run this business and I, you know, I had employed people and it wasn't really something I was interested in, but I was kind of working on these other things. You know, what if I made a decision four years ago to just shut it down? Like, where would I be now? I don't know what the answer is. And I'm really happy again with the path that I've taken. But it is interesting to look back on that with the knowledge I have now and looking at my previous decisions and being like, oh, interesting. Like, especially, it's funny having those blog posts because I could see my thought process back then for better or for worse. That's the hard part is... You know, you said you had two jobs, you didn't like them, and therefore in your head, jobs are bad, you know, and and you'll hear the same thing. You'll hear people talk about venture capital. Oh, I read two TechCrunch articles of a founder getting screwed by his VC, therefore venture capital is bad. Or you'll hear, oh, a business, you know, built their revenue on organic search, SEO, and then Google smacked them around. And now they went out of business. And this is a con- it's a common story. I've had entire products just go under because of Google. Therefore, I'm never going to do organic search. But it's like, no, the, these conclusions are, are, they're too broad, you know, and, and they can shift. They frame your mindset in a way that you don't even, you don't even realize. And oftentimes it's, if you found the right job, then it would be, be good. If you find the right 
money under the right terms, it would be good. If you use Google for the right purposes, which is to get you money, enough money so that you can hire people to have other revenue streams so you're diversified, then it's a good thing. But it's it's thinking about it in in that way. And I mean, we're, we're all guilty of this. And it's it's not something that's, that's easy to do. But I, I think about some roles that I've hired for where I remember thinking, there's no way I can find someone to do this. There's no way that I can, we just can't hire for this role. So I'm going to have to do it. I mean, even like program manager of Tiny Seed. It's like, this is my, you know, it's my accelerator. Like Einar and I started this. Who can possibly run it in a way that, that it will work? And I remember I kept telling myself, but if we find the right person, then it'll work, you know? And, and that was what I had to tell myself to take that risk. And of course, we found you and you're the right person. And it, and it makes sense. And I'm so glad that you have taken over so much of the role that I would be just bogged down with a day to day and not able to do the other things that I need to do. Yeah, it's funny about momentum. A lot of the wedding lovely was just, or not maybe not momentum, but it's just being like, feeling like I'm on a certain path and it's so hard to change that path. It's so hard to consider the other paths that are available when you have, you're currently in a rut, you know? And I was in that rut for a really long time and it was really hard for me to see over the edges of that rut to see what else was out there or to conceive of the 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 work that would be required to jump out of the path I was on. And so I just like pushed it. I kept pushing it year over year over year and telling myself like, okay, it's great that I'm only making 30 or $40,000 a year because of like, at least I'm working for myself. And I got to travel a lot. I got to work abroad for a really long time. I got to do a lot of really great things. I allowed me to launch this book thing, which also led to a whole other um, interesting set of experiences and learnings. But a lot of it was just like, I got into this, this rut and it was so hard to move myself out of it. And now that I'm out of it, it's interesting to look back on this experience being like, I'm glad I had that experience. I learned so much from it. I've done so much with it, but I wish that I shut it down sooner. I wish I looked at the metrics. I wish I looked at how things were going. I wish that I considered that there's other things out there that could fulfill me in the same ways that it would. And I know that I'll take those learnings to whatever I'm doing in the future. So it's all like a really great learning experience. I learned so much from it. I wish I did some things differently, but I'm glad that I did it. Final question is, as we wrap up, Wedding Lovely could have worked. Like as an idea, it was it provided value and it, and it could have provided you with a full-time income and employed people. Why didn't it work? <laughs> Wedding industry. Oh man, I could talk for ages about this and I'll try to keep it short. A, I'm actually don't like the wedding industry myself, which is funny running a startup on the wedding industry. But I told myself I, I jumped into the wedding industry because I wanted to switch how it was done. I didn't really like this focus on consumerism in weddings. And I wanted to have a place where it was like, you know, instead of worrying about building this, this event where you have like a to-do list of like 500 to-dos long, you know, what if you had a website that was more of like a friend helping you through the process, telling you just like the, the, the big things that you have done, like getting a photographer and why you should get a photographer and what's going on. So that was a good idea. And like, I wanted to lead into this even better idea is like in the wedding industry, I wish there was a place with like an all one booking platform, like Airbnb, like they're like, how great would it be if you're getting married and you had this one platform to find people, read reviews, talk with them, do some messaging, and then do the payments and, you know, have everything under one area rather than like juggling all these different vendors. Like that's one of the reasons like weddings are really crazy. And there's such an opportunity here for that. But because it's like, it's such a high churn, like insanely high churn business where, you know, if you're going to work with people who are getting married and these people are going to like leave the platform in a year and you have to find a whole new set of customers, it kills anyone jumping into this industry. 
I, I did the best I could by working on the business side of things, but combining the fact that the wedding industry is really hard, um, it's really hard to have repeat customers, it's really hard to build a sustainable business on it, and then the fact that I am not interested in going to wedding fairs. I, I eloped in Vegas. I was not even going to touch a full wedding myself. It's not something I'm really passionate about. I'm passionate about changing it, and I was able to use that passion in that way, but like a lot of that also went into why... It was not good for me to run Wedding Lovely as long as I did, and also why Wedding Lovely itself didn't work. Tough business, tough industry, and little lack of product founder fit, it sounds like. Exactly. I mean, again, fun process. I taught myself how to program by building Wedding Lovely. I My design skills improved. I learned how to you know, do all this crazy backend stuff and build this like crazy marketplace. You know, I learned marketing and sales to an extent. Like I, it was a huge learning process and it was fun working in the industry. I met, a, I made many amazing connections. Would I ever do a wedding startup again? No. Like <laughs> I definitely want to move on to, I like advising wedding startups and telling them all the, the terrible stories I have and advising them to, well, I don't want, I don't ever tell someone to change, but I try to tell all the problems that happens in the wedding industry when you're building an app and why it's not as easy as you might think. And a lot of people I find think it's easy, but I've tried to be the person who is very clear about the problems I've had so other people can learn from it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tracy. If folks want to keep up with you online, where would they do that? Uh, personal website is tracyosborne.com. I'm also on Twitter as Tracy Makes and Instagram and other social media. Sounds great. Thanks again. Thank you. I want to thank Tracy again for coming on the show. I like her story because it's not very often that someone runs a startup for nine years and puts it on autopilot and hires a team to run it and, you know, just has these kind of the ups and downs and the experience she did and her willingness to, to relive that with me today is much appreciated. That wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.